Today's scripture is John chapter 14, 15 through 17. So if you'll join with me as I read. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. San Jose, California is in the heart of the Silicon Valley, where people come from all over the world to work in the technology industry. It's also where many people do, do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why Daniel and Kayla Atondo have planted Eden Church to reach all kinds of people across San Jose with the love and hope of Jesus. Already, the church has, been, has had a big impact for Christ. For example, one woman who runs a new tech company grew up in another religion and did not attend any church. But one of her friends had begun attending Eden and so invited the woman. She went one Sunday, then continued attending. Eventually, she accepted Christ as her Savior. She also did what any tech company owner would do. She started a blog about what was interesting to her. In this case, Jesus Christ and her faith journey to know Him better. She has become a passionate witness about her new Savior. Our church's contributions through the cooperative program help support Daniel and Kayla and their two young children as they live and serve there in California. These are our missionaries. Let's pray for them now and ask that God would help them to reach many more people who would come to a passionate faith in Jesus Christ and that Eden Church will become a strong supporter of the Christian faith all over the city. I hope you still have your Bibles open to the passage that Ben read in the Gospel of John. And you might be wondering, wait a minute, last week for Sanctity of Life, we were in the book of Genesis. We took a... I guess a path, of, uh, took a break or a path away from our study in the book of Acts to spend a little bit of time, uh, in a sanctity of life type passage, uh, in the book of Genesis. And then this Sunday we're supposed to be back in Acts, right? We just kind of, uh, what, are we going to spend two Sundays away from Acts? Well, yes, we're in the book of John, just this passage in the book of John. But really what we're doing this morning is we're using this passage and doing um, uh, doing a study on the Holy Spirit, because I don't know if you know if you've got your Bibles open, and hopefully you do, you can flip over back to the very opening page of the Gospel of or Gospel Gospel of Acts. Listen to me. You can flip over to the very first page of the Book of Acts and look at the title that you have there in your Bible. The title in the ESV or the title in my Bible says the Acts of the Apostles. Well, different versions might have different uh, titles to go along with the title of Acts. We refer to it as the book of Acts, but there's a longer title in there. You need to understand that when Luke wrote the book of Acts, he didn't title it. At least we don't have any record that he titled it. Really what he wrote when he wrote the book of Acts, if you remember all the way back two years ago when we started the book of Acts, you remember that we said that Acts is really the second volume of the gospel that Luke wrote. So you have the gospel according to Luke, and then the second volume of that was or is Acts. So this title, Acts or Acts of the Apostles, really that's something that we have added that 
to on top of the text just to give it a description just so that we can know where it is in the Bible. But really when you hopefully through these 21 chapters that we've been through so far of the book of Acts, you've seen more than just the Acts of the Apostles. We've talked, yes, we've talked about them, but some people say, well, I I wish instead of it being called the Acts of the Apostles, I wish that it was called uh, the Acts of the Early Church. Well, there certainly is a pattern of, I mean, everything that we see in the book of Acts from chapter 2 on is the birth and the growth of the church. So, yes, you could call it the Acts of the Church. Some folks think that we ought to call it the Acts of the Risen Christ. Well, really, that's probably, if Luke was to give it a title, that's probably what he would have named it because that's how he started the first verse of the first chapter of the book of Acts is he says that he is describing the continuing work of Christ. So you could divide his two volumes up, the Acts of Christ on earth, the Acts of Christ after he's risen. So that could be a a good title of it. But I think for our purposes, probably the... One thing that permeates, a thread that runs all the way through the book of Acts, you could call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because from the very first section of the first chapter of Acts, all the way through the end of Acts chapter 28, the Holy Spirit takes, I was going to say takes a prominent role, The Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is active through the whole book, through the workings and the inner workings and all of that throughout the book without taking a starring role. So we could say that it's the acts of the Holy Spirit. By my count, throughout the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is specific, through the 28 chapters of the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is specifically referred to at least 57 times. So you see, he takes, he's a thread that runs through the whole thing. We've seen the Holy Spirit promised at the ascension of Christ. We've seen the Holy Spirit's work at Pentecost. We've seen him preached about in sermons by Peter and Stephen and Paul. Not only have we seen him preached about, we've seen him as the power behind the preaching. We've seen the Holy Spirit work through people, work miracles through people, work miracles through individuals work miracles through the church. We've seen the Holy Spirit work through the church and multiply the church. We've even seen the Holy Spirit kill people. We saw the Holy Spirit kill Ananias and Sapphira. Oh, wait a minute, we don't want to talk about that. But but we saw Him do that. Not only did we see the Holy Spirit kill people, we saw we've seen the Holy Spirit raise the dead. We've seen the Holy Spirit direct churches in calling new leaders, in calling deacons, and in sending missionaries. We've seen the Holy Spirit guide and direct people, including the other Ananias, <laughs> the one who worked with Paul. Worked with him, worked with Philip, Agabus, Barnabas, Peter, Paul, in the lives of all of those. We've seen how the Holy Spirit, sometimes He says, yes, Sometimes he says no. Sometimes he opens doors. Sometimes he's closed doors. We've seen all of that as we've gone through the book of Acts. 
two weeks ago, the reason that this study, the reason that the Lord laid this on my heart to bring this morning is because two weeks ago we even saw something very unique that the Holy Spirit did with two groups of people. He led Paul in one clear direction, and he led those faithful believers who were around him in the completely opposite direction. It was kind of confusing, but, you know, if you're confused by that, you can go back and listen to the audio. But we've seen the Holy Spirit work all the way through this book. And it doesn't just stop up to the point where we are now. We see that the Holy Spirit continues through the life of the church, continues through the letters that were written, continues all the way through the promised end events that are going to happen in the book of Revelation. We, what's fascinating about this book is the only reason that we have this book here in front of us, including the book of Acts, is because specifically with the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write the book. And he not only inspired him to write the book, he inspired him, he didn't dictate it to him, but he inspired him in such a way as to preserve him from any error whatsoever. But he preserved that writing so that we can sit here nearly 2,000 years after it's after it was written, and we can read it in our language that it wasn't originally written in, and we can rest assured that what we're reading and what we're preaching and what we're teaching is the actual, literal words of God. That's only possible because of the Holy Spirit, the work that the Holy Spirit has done. So yes, this the book of Acts is the record of the Acts of the Apostles. It's also the record of the acts of the resurrected Christ. It's also the record of the acts of the early church. But in and over and through and behind all of those acts are the acts of the Holy Spirit. So since we've been working our way through this book for the past two years, this book that can rightly be called the acts of the Holy Spirit, I I wanted to take this morning just to focus on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And I want to do that by looking at this passage where Jesus introduces the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Holy Spirit, to His disciples. Let's look at that passage again that Ben read earlier, John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17. Jesus is addressing His immediate disciples. This is a small group that's gathered around the table in an upper room. And He says, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. So I want to give just a little background to the context of of what's going on here, in case you're not familiar with it or haven't placed it where it belongs in the context of the Scripture around it. This event happened right before Jesus was hung on the cruel cross of Calvary as a payment for our sins. It happened right before that. It happened right before Jesus was shamed and beaten and flogged on our behalf. 
This happened right before Jesus was betrayed by somebody that He loved. It happened right before Jesus prayed in the garden so fervently that He sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. So right before all of those events happened, Jesus spoke this to His disciples. He knew all of those things were on His immediate horizon. Those were right in front of Him. And He knew how traumatic that was going to be, not just for Him, but He knew how traumatic it was going to be for His disciples. So in those moments, rather than being consumed about what was going to happen to Him over the next several hours, He was consumed with concern for His disciples. So there, as they were gathered in that upper room at the table where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper that we're going to celebrate here in just a little bit at the end of the service, in that upper room as they were gathered around that table, Jesus told them that even though He was physically leaving them, He wasn't going to leave them as orphans. He was going to be with them. He was going to send another comforter. He was going to send another helper. He was telling them that even though He was going to physically leave them, His Spirit never would leave them. Doesn't that sound like what He said at the end of Matthew? He said, Lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. That's what He was telling His disciples. He was giving them comfort in that. See, what we need to realize is that In the same way, when Jesus saves us, when Jesus saves you, even though you can't physically see Him, even though you can't physically enjoy being in the presence of Jesus, He is with you. His Spirit is with you. When you trust Jesus as Lord and Master and Savior, that means that His Holy Spirit dwells in you, lives in you. That's what Jesus told Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. So even though we can't see Jesus, His Spirit dwells in us as believers. And He'll never leave us. Amen? Oh, that's comfort. See, if you've trusted Jesus as Lord and Master and Savior, that means that you, even in your darkest and loneliest and most heartbroken places, that means that you're never alone. Never alone. Now notice in verse 15 that Jesus said, He started off that whole thing. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That is the evidence of our salvation. If you have, if you have doubts about your salvation, well, check the way that you're living. If you're living according to the commandments of Jesus, that's evidence of your salvation. If you're not living according to the commandments of Jesus, then it doesn't matter how wet you got in a baptistry sometime, that's a good indication that you need to be concerned about your salvation. Now the evidence of our salvation is that we are keeping the commandments of Jesus. See, if you say that you're saved, what you're saying is that I love Jesus. And if you love Jesus, then you're going to do what He told us to do, right? If you truly believe Him, that means that you submit to Him as your Lord and Master and King. In other words, you'll keep His commandments. Now, don't get confused about this. Um, 
I'm not saying that if you, that you have to keep his commandments in order that you would be saved. That's not true. But if you are saved, you will keep his commandments. Amen? You'll keep his commandments because you love him, because you desire to please him. But here's the, here's the rub with that whole thing is none of us in and of ourselves, none of us in our flesh, have the power or the ability to keep the commandments that Jesus gives us. That's why we desperately need Him living in us. The only way that we can keep Jesus' commandments is not by keeping a list and going through and checking off those, those items in our own strength. The only way that we can keep Jesus' commandments is because the Spirit who dwells in us gives us the power to overcome sin in our lives. The power to become more and more like Jesus. The power to love Him. The power to keep His commandments. That's the only way it happens. See, at the moment of salvation, you have a comforter living in you. At the moment of salvation, you have a helper living with you and in you. That same Holy Spirit that we've seen working throughout the book of Acts, He lives with you. He lives in you if you trusted Jesus as Master and Savior. And He does that as your helper and as your comforter. So you're never alone. So to understand a little bit more about this Holy Spirit who's living in you, we're going to spend some time answering two questions this morning. Who is He and what does He do? First question that we're going to tackle is, who is this Holy Spirit? Well, I think a lot of times, or at least it's helpful with me to identify uh, what something is or who something is. Um, it's helpful to identify who He's not. <laughs> so if any of you, like me, grew up on the King James, um, just let's get this out of the way. The Holy Spirit's not a ghost. All right? Talk to me in private afterwards. <laughs> the Holy Spirit's not a ghost. It's uh, King James is a good translation and and all of that, and and we're blessed and we're thankful because thank, thankful for its history and and for all of those things. But it's unfortunate that in the 17th century that they chose that particular word to translate the words pneumatos hagio. That's what it is in Greek. Pneumatos is is the Greek word for that can be translated breath or spirit or wind. And hagio, of course, is holy. When when we see the word ghost, we don't we don't think in the same terms that maybe somebody in Victorian England would have. When we see the word ghost, we think, you know, spooky stuff, right? We think spooky movies or we think scary things or cheap Halloween costumes wearing a sheet or something like that. There are a group of you in here, when you hear the word ghost, you're thinking Demi Moore and Patrick Swayze. And if that's you, you need to get that pottery scene out of your mind now so that we can worship Jesus, okay? (laughs) But we need to get that imagery of ghost out of our mind because the Holy Spirit is not an apparition. The Holy Spirit is a person. More specifically, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Now notice, the whole time that I've been talking about the Holy Spirit, I address the Holy Spirit as He. The Holy Spirit is not an it. 
See, if the Holy Spirit was just this warm, fuzzy feeling when you hear the preacher tell some tearjerker, sentimental story, you know, and that wells up in your heart and you get all emotional, if that was the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit would be an it. If the Holy Spirit was just a tingling in your tummy or a tear in your eye when you sing a worship song that you particularly like, then He would be an it. He would be a feeling or something that's an emotion that stirred up or welled up within you. If the Holy Spirit was just a presence or an impression or even just a voice, then He would be an it. But the Holy Spirit is not limited to those things. The Holy Spirit's not limited to it things. The Holy Spirit is God. And as God, He is a personal God. Just as the Father is God, just as the Son is God, just as the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Here's how our, you know, as Southern Baptists we have, um, of course we hold Scripture above all, but we have gathered and developed uh, a statement of faith of things that we as churches can agree on and partner around. And our statement of faith is called the Baptist Faith and Message. Here's how the Baptist Faith and Message describes the Holy Spirit. It says, The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God, fully divine. Fully divine. Spirit of God, personal God. Fully divine. God in Spirit. As God, the Holy Spirit was involved in creation. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. As God, the Holy Spirit was involved with the judgment surrounding the flood. Genesis chapter 6 verse 3 says, Then the Lord said, My Spirit shall not abide in man forever for his flesh. His days shall be 120 years. As God, the Holy Spirit was involved in the incarnation when Christ condescended and came in the flesh for us. The Holy Spirit was intimately involved in that. Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 says, But as He, that's talking about Joseph, as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is, in, was, is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son. You'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Not only was the Holy Spirit involved, intimately involved in the incarnation, the Holy Spirit was intimately involved in the crucifixion of Christ as well. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much will He purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So, the Holy Spirit was intimately involved in creation. The Holy Spirit was intimately involved in judgment. The Holy Spirit was intimately involved in the incarnation of Christ. The Holy Spirit was intimately involved in the crucifixion of Christ. The Holy Spirit was also intimately involved in the resurrection of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse, verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in or by or through the Spirit. And in many of our versions, that Spirit there isn't capitalized. It should be. 
is made alive through or in or by the Holy Spirit. Throughout our study in the book of Acts, we've seen how the Holy Spirit was intimately involved in the birth and the growth and the development of the church. And as I said earlier in the book of the, in the book of Revelation, we see how even the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit will even be intimately involved in the consummation of all things and the second coming of Christ when Christ returns to make all things new. The Holy Spirit will be involved intimately in that. In other words, every place that God the Father and God the Son are involved, God the Holy Spirit is intimately involved. Just as the Father is eternal, almighty, all-knowing, ever-present God, the Son is eternal, almighty, ever-present, all-knowing God. And just as the Son is, the Holy Spirit is Eternal, almighty, all-knowing, ever-present God. Don't we sing it in one of our hymns that we love? Now, Miranda has a, a dear friend that, um, she's, uh, she's a Lutheran. She's, she loves Jesus, but, you know, she's just confused, I guess. <laughs> but she's a Lutheran. She says every time she comes to a Baptist church, it seems like we sing holy, holy, holy. <laughs> So she associates that song with Baptists. I, I don't know what that association is. But don't we sing that every time that we sing that song? God in three persons? You want me to sing it, don't you? No, you don't. <laughs> God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Now that's a quick synopsis of who the Holy Spirit is. So with that basic understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. Next comes the question, which I think is so distorted and so confused in our world today, and that's what does the Holy Spirit do? Once again, like I said, there's a lot of confusion surrounding that. There's a lot of twisting and distorting of not just who the Holy Spirit is, but especially what He does. Does the Holy Spirit possess people and cause them to act out of their mind? Does the Holy Spirit knock people down? Does the Holy Spirit cause people to go into convulsions? Does the Holy Spirit cause people to start speaking and uttering gibberish? Does the Holy Spirit cause people to bark like dogs or laugh uncontrollably? uncontrollably? Does the Holy Spirit cause people to handle snakes and drink poison? I, on that last one, I'd say, God forbid. <laughs> Now, as crazy as that might sound, all of those things, those are actions that are regularly attributed to the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's wrong. It's wrong. Confusion about the work of the Holy Spirit has led to countless heartbreak and discouragement as people place their hope and their trust and their money in so-called faith healers. Now, does God heal people? Yes, He does. I think we can all say amen to that. God heals people. We've seen it, haven't we? But God's not going to heal people through some charlatan con man who neither teaches Scripture nor lives by it. Don't fall for those kind of things. When you see those kind of things on display, it might be the work of a demon spirit, but I can guarantee you it's not the work of the Holy Spirit. So how do you know whether or not something is really the work of the Holy Spirit or whether it's not just something attributed to Him? How do you know when something is the work of the Holy Spirit? 
You know when something is the work of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit always and only points to Jesus. Amen? The Holy Spirit never points to Himself, and the Holy Spirit never, certainly never, points to the elevation of some person. The Holy Spirit is always and only pointing to Jesus. He never exalts anything or anyone other than Jesus. Later on in Jesus' conversation with His disciples, He expanded His explanation of this coming Holy Spirit. If you want to flip over to John chapter 16, He has this He continues this teaching with them in verses 7 through 11. He tells them, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. They were feeling heartbroken that Jesus is telling them that he's leaving them. He says, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, look at this, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Judged by whom? Judged by Jesus. So if you're looking for a good summary of the works of the Holy Spirit, you might want to circle that in your Bible. Or if you've got a highlighter, you might want to highlight that in your Bible. Because that's a good summary of what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit always points people to Jesus. He points people to Jesus by convicting of sin. He points people to Jesus by, by showing them their need for righteousness outside of themselves. He points people to Jesus by pointing to the fact that there is a judgment to come and we will all stand one day to give an account before the God who created us. Holy Spirit points to Jesus those three ways. The Holy Spirit does not point people to themselves by health and wealth and prosperity. Holy Spirit does not do it by giving ecstatic sentimental feelings. That's not what He does. Now, to exalt Jesus, the Holy Spirit works in all kinds of ways to convict of sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. Anything that falls outside of that is not the work of the Holy Spirit. Here's how, and back to the Baptist faith and message, here's how that sums up His works. You can follow along. I think the text is on the screen. He, the Holy Spirit, inspired holy men of old to write the Scriptures. Through illumination, He enables men to understand the truth. He exalts Christ. He convicts men of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He calls men to the Savior and effects regeneration. At the moment of regeneration, He baptizes every believer into the body of Christ. In other words, when you're saved, at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit immerses you in the body of Christ. He cultivates Christian character. He comforts believers. He bestows the spiritual gifts by which they serve God through His church. He seals the believer unto the day of final redemption. His presence in the Christian is the guarantee that God will bring the believer into the fullness of the stature of Christ. He enlightens and empowers the believer and the church in worship, evangelism, and service. 
Okay, so long paragraph to read. If you're still awake, let me just kind of break that down for you, and we'll we'll kind of break that down in a little bit, um, I guess, bite-sized chunks for you. You need to understand that the only reason that we have this, the only reason that we have this Bible here in front of us this morning is because it was given to us by the Holy Spirit. The only reason that we have this is because, for example, with Luke, the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write the text. That word inspired, it literally means breathed out. The Holy Spirit, the breath of God breathed out His Word through Luke and through John and through Matthew and through Moses and through David and through all of the writers of Scripture to write His Word. He didn't dictate it through them. He used their individual personalities and all of those kind of things. But He superintended the practice so that they were protected from any kind of error. So that the words that they wrote were exactly the words of God Himself. But that's not where it stopped. It didn't just stop with the inspiration of Scripture. Because when you and I, as believers, when we read this text... The Holy Spirit shines the light on the text for us. Shines His light on the text for us. That's called illumination. He opens our eyes beyond just the words on the page so that what we see is the very Word of God Himself. So that what we experience when we read the Word of God... Somebody said one time... Somebody was was told, I forget who it was, but they said, uh, you know, I really desperately want to hear... God speak to me audibly. I think it was Adrian Rogers. And he said, well, if you want to hear God speak to you audibly, then read the Bible out loud. Because that's what happens when we read the text. We are reading God's Word. God's Spirit shines the light on us. And then in this act of preaching, it's probably the most ineffective, or not ineffective, inefficient form of communication that there is especially in the generation that we are now. But this is uniquely prescribed by God. And what happens in this act of preaching is in my study and as in in preparation and in the act of preaching, we pray that the Holy Spirit anoints me as I speak His Word. And as the Holy Spirit anoints me and does what the old folks call uh, gives unction in preaching. I love that. Love that. I texted that to a preacher friend of mine this morning, and he said, when you texted that, um, the, I misread it and said that it looked like you said that you were praying that I would unicorn, that I would have unicorn. <laughs> I said, no, not unicorn, unction. But that's, that's a spirit-given um, fervency. But it doesn't stop there because the only way that you will benefit from the preaching of God's Word, that's why some folks can sit in one spot and somebody can sit right next to them and you hear and you're impacted in different ways by the sermon. Some can sleep and some can be spurred on. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who has to apply the words that you hear. And it doesn't just stop with the hearing of the Word that's proclaimed in the place. It goes on as the Holy Spirit enables you to act on the application as you walk out the door. In other words, through all of that process, you and I 
are convicted of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. The change that happens to us as we go through this process of of feeding on God's Word, whether it's in our own quiet time or whether it's in the public gathering, the, the, the change that will happen to you, the change that the Holy Spirit will will bring about in your life is described in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. And Paul, when he wrote that, he described that as the fruit of the Spirit. By the way, it's not plural, it's singular, fruit of the Spirit. And you have these different aspects of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. There's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As the Spirit works in our lives to make us more and more like Christ, He is growing that fruit in our lives so that we can display those behaviors. But on top of that, on top of just giving us the fruit of the Holy Spirit and growing that in our lives, on top of that, as a believer, the Holy Spirit gives each and every one of us gifts the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He gives us the, the, the gifting. Basically what a spiritual gift is. There's, there's confusion on this as well. But scripturally, basically what a, what a gift of the Holy Spirit is, is any kind of talent, any kind of skill, any kind of trait, any kind of ability that God blesses you with in order for you to bless the church that He's put you in in order to develop the saints in that church. But God gives you those things to build up your church so that our church can accomplish our mission. That's the corporate nature of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. So also the Holy Spirit, you know, fruit and gifts, but also the Holy Spirit in your life will give you direction. We've seen that over and over again throughout the book of Acts, haven't we? The Holy Spirit will give you direction. The Holy Spirit will give you peace. Paul talked about that as the peace that passes understanding. Kind of peace. The only way that a believer can have peace when they get the diagnosis of terminal cancer is it has to be supernatural. It's the work of the Spirit in us. He gives us peace. He gives us comfort. He gives us help. Before you were saved, the Holy Spirit called you, and He drew you. He wooed you to Jesus through His Word. As the Gospel was proclaimed to you as a non-believer, God used that, His Spirit used that to draw you and call you to Him. That happened before you were saved. When you were saved, at the moment you were saved, the Holy Spirit miraculously opened your heart to Jesus as you believed, and He gave you new life in Him. That was the Holy Spirit's work at the moment of salvation. But as a believer, the Holy Spirit lives in you. He shapes you. He molds you. He guides you. He equips you. He motivates you. And He makes you more and more like Jesus every day. And as a believer... The Holy Spirit permanently seals you so that not one who Jesus saved will ever be lost. He preserves you 
until the day that you get to see Jesus face to face. Now, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed until the day of redemption. In other words, you can boil all that down, and some of you are probably wishing I had just boiled it all down instead of going through all that. But you can boil it all down to say that the Holy Spirit got you saved, the Holy Spirit is getting you saved, and the Holy Spirit is keeping you saved. i got to admit... I am an absolute theology geek. Confession time, right? Uh, you know, you look at the books on my shelves and the books on my shelves at home and all that, and you realize that, you know, I just love studying theology. Um, but sometimes studying theology or studying a theological concept or a theological, you know, like just studying the Holy Spirit, sometimes that can feel like it's dry, like it's dry or like it's academic. But there's one thing that I've learned over the years if the way that you study theology leaves you feeling dry, you ain't doing it right. So if you're studying more and more about God and the Holy Spirit and Christ, if that makes you feel dry, find a better way to do it. Think about it like this. The only way that a husband and wife, the only way that a spouse will seem dry and boring to you um, is if your relationship's broken. And it's the same way with studying the Holy Spirit. The only way that the Holy Spirit, studying the Holy Spirit, will feel dry and boring to you is if you're grieving Him because your relationship with God is either non-existent or is broken. So if that's you here this morning, I trust that the Holy Spirit is drawing you to Him. I trust that the Holy Spirit is drawing you to Jesus. I pray that even now He is convicting you of sin, and He's showing you that your only righteousness is in righteousness that's given to you. I pray that He will create in you a new heart as you believe in Jesus and you confess Jesus as your Lord and your Master and your King. That's my prayer for you this morning if you're unsaved. Now, for those of us in here who are saved, my prayer is that each of us will display the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I pray that that will be on display in our lives so much that people will say, there's something different about you before we ever open our mouth to share the gospel with them. I pray that you'll start using all of the talents and all of the gifts and all of the blessings that God has given you for the purpose, for the sole purpose of building up this body so that we can accomplish the mission that God's given us. If you're a believer here this morning, I pray that you'll show the fruit and exercise your gifts. That's my prayer this morning. Will you join me in that prayer? Father... There is so much confusion. So much false teaching. So much error over who Your Holy Spirit is. And especially over what He does. 
Father, forgive us for thinking that we can conjure up Your Holy Spirit just by the type or the way that we sing. Father, forgive us for trying to treat Your Holy Spirit like some sort of a magic potion. Father, forgive us for not seeing Your Holy Spirit for who He is. But Father, even more than that, I would ask that You would forgive us for not listening to Your Holy Spirit, for grieving Your Holy Spirit. So Father, every time that Your Spirit shows us sin in our lives, And we ignore it. Every time that your Holy Spirit points out the righteousness of Christ, and we try to elevate our own righteousness instead, oh God, forgive us. Father, every time that we try to view judgment as something that somebody else deserves or that somebody else is going to experience. Father, forgive us. Lord, if there's one in our midst who's never trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, I trust Your Spirit to be working in their hearts even now. Father, for those of us who have trusted Jesus as Lord, and Master and Savior, but we're not displaying the fruits of the Spirit or we're not exercising the gifts of the Spirit, oh Lord, I'd ask, and I trust that Your Spirit is convicting even now. So Father, my my prayer, prayer boils down to this. Lord, I'd ask that none of us would leave this place this morning grieving Your Spirit by our disobedience. In Jesus' name, amen.